All right, we have our scriptures open together uh, to Luke 17. On November 7th, 1991, I remember a, a, a news conference, Irvin Magic Johnson, who for so many years was the face of the Los Angeles Lakers, a very storied and important franchise in the NBA, the National Basketball Association, announced his retirement from professional basketball. Uh, Magic was known throughout the world. His, he was at the top of his game. But something drastic had happened to this man. Johnson had discovered that he was HIV positive. At that time, the world <clears throat> still had a lot to learn about HIV and about AIDS. But what was known was that there was no, no known cure for the disease, that it was something that often led to severe sickness and death, and that it was spreading through the world at a, an alarming rate. It was becoming an epidemic. So to have HIV in the 1990s came with a very real social stigma. People with HIV were often avoided. They were often looked down upon or judged. They were often treated with great caution. People kept folks with HIV or AIDS at arm's length. And as we open our scripture together today, we're going to see Jesus interacting with a group of 10 men who did not have HIV, but they suffered from a disease that had a far-reaching impact on the region of Palestine. And it carried much the same or similar stigmas in Jesus' day that HIV and AIDS did in our country not too long ago. The 10 men that Jesus interacts with here in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19 have leprosy. And though their lives have been greatly affected by this serious disease, they are about to experience the power that Jesus has over all sickness. And so we're going to be reading today verses 11 through 19 of Luke chapter 17. Now it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that Jesus passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And then as he entered a certain village, there he met there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God. And he fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And so Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were they not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Would you please bow with me with a, for a, a brief moment of prayer as we prepare our hearts to, to take this passage to heart. God, we thank you for what you have given to us today in your scripture. And as we sang a little while ago, Lord, we invite you to come wrestle with us. That is a, a Hebrew notion, the idea that we wrestle with truth. We, we grapple with the truths that you reveal to us, which are so often different than what we hold to be truth from our own intuition or through our own logic, Lord God. I pray that you would wrestle us and win today. I pray that you would help us to understand what is real about true faith. That you'd help us to understand what it means to not only believe in you, God, but to walk in that belief. God, help us to submit ourselves to you with joy today, knowing that you are a good leader, a good master. 
Father, help us to serve you well with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this section that we're looking at this morning, friends, opens <clears throat> with a common reminder that Jesus and his disciples are en route right now to the city of David. They are headed to Jerusalem. We saw this before in chapter 9, verse 51, where it said, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. At that point, his ministry focus and emphasis shifted from the region of Galilee in the north, southward, and he began to travel from village to village through Judea on the way to Jerusalem. Uh, Luke 13.22 reiterated this point, wanted us to keep it in our mind that this is the progress that Jesus is making towards that final ministry that he will do in Jerusalem, specifically at Calvary on the cross. It said in Luke 13, and he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. So Luke wants us to keep this in mind. He wants us to realize that Jesus, our Messiah, is moving towards that ultimate goal. And as he does so, he continues to preach and continues to show truth to every village that he enters into with varying degrees of reception. Some people are receiving him well. Some people are rejecting him. In some places, he's experiencing opposition from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and other entrenched religious groups that are not so sure they can trust this Jesus. Though he has miraculous power, though he preaches with conviction and truth, People are having a hard time with the message because it is is so challenging to them. Now the area that Jesus is traveling through here essentially borders on two areas, the region of Galilee in the north where he formerly ministered and the region of Samaria in the southwest near the shores of the sea. This area is, uh, it seems to be a little out of place as we've been talking about this journey towards Jerusalem for quite a while Uh, We know that the author, Luke, of this book did not care so much about chronology as much as he did about themes. And so from time to time, he'll take an event that happened and he will place it in his gospel record out of order because it matches the themes of other stories that he groups together. And so it's likely that this might have happened sometime chronologically before where we're at right now in the the progress of this gospel message uh, because he's still near to Galilee there. But the message really fits well with the the words of truth that help us understand faith and how it is lived out. We talked about two weeks ago prior to Mother's Day. As Jesus journeyed, we're told that he was met by ten men who were lepers. Now, leprosy sometimes is referred to as Hansen's disease. It is a bacterial infection that afflicts the nervous system. A lot of people think of it as a skin disease, but really it is deeper than that. It is a nervous system dysfunction. And in the time of Scripture, leprosy had a much broader definition than it does today. There were many other similar afflictions that were grouped under the understanding of leprosy. People called several different conditions leprosy, even though today we define it a lot more narrowly. Was leprosy curable? Yes, there were instances where people would recover from leprosy, though that often still left them with the repercussions, the damage that had been done during the time of that disease. And though there was no seemingly medicinal cure for this disease, and often if you got leprosy, it would last for many, many years. Uh, The consequences of the side effects of leprosy would often lead to infections that could cause death. And so it was a very serious, uh, very serious condition. It was also contagious. Anyone who was in prolonged 
physical contact with somebody with leprosy was at risk at, of contracting that nervous system disorder themselves. Um, <clears throat> this week, uh, Missy and I were going to Costco yesterday with the kids, uh, for, mostly for the samples. And, um, <laughs> and uh, as we began to unbuckle our little ones, uh, Missy noticed there was spots all over Benjamin's legs. Uh-oh. This isn't our first go-around. So then she had him open his mouth, and there were spots on his tongue. And we realized that we had a wonderful case of hand, foot, and mouth disease on our hands. And so uh, thankfully, our other four boys, <clears throat> we believe, have, have already had it. And once you've had it, your body builds up antibodies, and you're probably not going to have it again. But uh, that means that our kids are on quarantine. There are no Neves boys up in the Sunday school classroom today because we don't want any of our kids to be around your kids, so you can take this wonderful gift home yourselves. We are now isolated, in, in a sense, from the rest of the world. We were actually planning on going on a brief vacation with a couple other families from the church, and now we're not able to do that because this sickness has caused us to be quarantined off. And when you had leprosy in the time of Scripture, in many ways you had to experience that for years. Because you were considered contagious and because the consequences of this disease were, were so serious, people did not want to come near to you. They, they definitely did not want to touch you. They did not want to dwell in close proximity to you, especially within the culture of Judaism. If you were a Hebrew, there were specific laws about someone who contracted leprosy in its many forms in the Old Testament and how they could not participate in temple worship because temple was a place of purity and they didn't want to infect others who had come to worship God. And so there was a separation socially from people who had leprosy from their countrymen, from other well people. If you were walking down the street and you had leprosy, you had to call out unclean so that others would know and they wouldn't accidentally approach you and come into contact with you. So this leprosy was very severe. It would cause the skin to become thickened in areas. It would be, cause different parts of your body to swell up Bones would begin to twist and misform within you. Your limbs would often become contorted, where the hands would create a claw-like unusable formation and would no longer be able to open and close effectively. There were other serious complications as well. The nervous system would become so useless that you couldn't feel pain or hot or cold like you used to. And so many people who suffered from leprosy would then incur injury and not even know it. They would have lacerations or abrasions, which would lead to serious infections. The sores would become critically dangerous to them because they didn't know to take care of the problem. They didn't feel any pain. And so often people would die, not from the leprosy itself, but from the repercussions of having the disease. Leprosy was used on several occasions by Jesus as a symbolic illustration of the powerful impact that sin has on mankind. It affects all aspects of an individual's life. Sin is usually noticeable by other people. When we sin, people often see it eventually. And it can twist and distort what it, God means for the good. That doesn't mean that leprosy itself was some kind of sin or that it was necessarily a sign that an individual was being punished directly by God for some sin they had in their lives. Don't misunderstand. Jesus simply used it as a condition that vividly illustrated the far-reaching impact that sin can have on one's whole life, and particularly on their relationship and ability to be close to God. 
It is significant that Luke does not simply call these ten individuals lepers. Did you notice that? Luke 17, 12, And then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. They are men first, who happen to have a disease that is very serious. They are not, in the eyes of Jesus, defined as by their sickness. No matter the extent of sin and its impact upon individuals, we've got to remember that man or woman was created to bear the image of God. A human being, no matter how swept up in wickedness, no matter how corrupted or hindered by the effects of iniquity, must always be seen as human, as valued by God, as an object to be loved and built to be loved and to honor the Lord and author of their life. So too, when someone contracts a sickness, we, may not, we must be able to see past that sickness, past that limitation to the heart of humanity that is within them, thanks to the authorship of God. There was a, a, a book as, as a lit major in college that I got to study by a man named Nathaniel Hawthorne, considered one of America's great original writers, called The Scarlet Letter. And it was about a woman named Hester Prynne who bore a child out of wedlock. And because she was not married, the Puritan town that she was in brought her into the public square and forced her to wear a scarlet A, standing for adultery, upon her dress. And many of the themes of that book interact with this idea that once a person is labeled a sinner, sometimes it is difficult for people to look past the sin. They become nothing more than that sin that human beings have used to define them. And yet we must be cautious, brothers and sisters, that we don't look at the church as this holy little vessel that is so much better than a sinful world and look down at the people who do not yet trust in Christ as less than Christians. God wants us to see every human being, man, woman, and child, as made in the image of God and, are, and therefore very valuable to Him. Now this idea is not the thrust of the text, I admit, but it is worthy of consideration. It is right to hate sin. We as a church need to come to terms with the fact that sin is not defeated by just downplaying it, by making it normal. We, we should hate sin. We should, we should be affected by it. When it's in our lives, we should, we should feel shame about our sin. That is right. There is a godly sorrow that comes from recognizing that some of the things that we do are an offense to God and are hurtful to other people. We should hate the sin that we find in ourselves. We should hate the sin that we find in other people, too, because we see that it affects all of the world when others sin as well. But we should never allow the presence of sin to make us forget that the individual affected with that sin was made with holy intentions. And that individual should be treated with dignity and love, despite the fact that their heavenly potential is being stymied by a rebellious heart. If we see in our fellow men only sin and not the mark of God's creative intention that we might easily stop loving our neighbor. We might find it easy to justify ignoring them or avoiding them. We might neglect to pray for those around us to whom which God has called us to seek and save with the gospel. And so it is important for us that we look at this world not just full of a bunch of filthy sinners, but as a world full of people who are designed to bear the image of God, who sadly most are not bearing the image of God, and yet who need the gospel message so that they might put their faith in Jesus Christ and begin to do what they were called and designed to do, 
which was represent their creator. Verse 12 tells us that the men who were lepers, they stood afar off. They did not come near to Jesus. And this was in accordance to civil and Jewish law. Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 through 46 says, Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head shall be bare, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, Unclean, unclean, he shall be unclean. All the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. So it's not a surprise here that as we encounter Jesus walking along the road that ten lepers are grouped together and come and they see him. Because often lepers were exiled together. They lived in small communities where their sickness would not scare them off from one another but where they could not interact with the people of the clean world. Leviticus 14 goes on to describe the protocol that was set up for those people who had contracted leprosy but were experiencing healing from that how they were to go to a priest in the temple and to make an appointment to meet with them so they might be examined. So the priest could see whether they were truly healed and if they were, he would give them clearance to then go through a procedure in which they would become eligible to participate in the worship in the temple again, which was so very crucial to the nation of those who were covenanted to follow God as his chosen people. The ten recognized the Messiah as he approached where they were and they cried out to him from that safe distance. And how did they address Jesus? They lifted up their voices, says verse 13, and they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Some people wonder why there are four Gospels. The four, first four books of the New Testament are very similar in form and in content. They are all stories of the ministry and the life, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you might ask, well, why did God go to the trouble of creating these four books that are all talking about the same thing? Well, each of the gospel writers gives us unique perspectives and in, improves our understanding of the story of Jesus' life. I can't wait to sit with other disciples who walked with Jesus when I get to heaven and talk with them about their experiences of seeing the Lord work and some of the things that maybe we don't have written in Scripture, well, it's interesting that this word master, this title that Luke uses here as he records what these lepers said to Jesus, is only found in Luke's Gospel. Nowhere else in the New Testament is this word mentioned. It is epistata. epistata. It is any sort of superintendent or overseer, one with authority over others, such as a teacher or rabbi. And this term is only used by Luke. I think this term is significant because it shows a, a, a willingness to submit to Jesus on behalf of these ten lepers. There is apparent humility in them. We even see them respond to his command without question. They simply do what he has called them to do. This becomes ironic in some ways when we see the story unfold further and we realize that of the ten who listened, who obeyed of the ten who called him master, only one returns to him. And we'll talk about that more in a few moments. Their request to Jesus is that he have mercy on them. Now, some commentators, when they stu study this passage and write about it, they would suggest that perhaps these men had gotten past the idea that they might be healed. Perhaps they were looking simply for mercy. Perhaps they were asking for alms, that God might, through His resources, bless them with some money that they could buy food with. I don't think that really makes a whole lot of sense. I think these men 
knew that this was Jesus. They called him by name. They called him master. They gave him authority. And so I believe there is really only one way to see this. These men were hoping and desperate that Jesus would heal them, even though they didn't say so in as many terms. They asked him generally for this mercy to be given to them. In Luke 5 account, Jesus healed a leprous man. You might remember Paul preached a sermon about that back in Luke chapter 5. And then he forbade that man. He said once he was healed, do not go and tell anybody else what I just did for you. Uh, I, I believe, if I remember correctly, the man just went straight away and told everybody, which uh, is the heart of man at work. But the reason why Jesus would tell a man to not share this miraculous power is that word was spreading about the healing ability of Jesus. And Jesus was likely having trouble having opportunities to preach the gospel when so many people were coming simply for the healing aspect of his ministry. They just wanted to be set free of their burdens. They wanted to feel well again. When in reality, the more important aspect of Jesus' mission was the healing of the heart and soul. He did not want physical healings to distract from the eternal healing that can come from trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In Luke 17, Jesus does not come into physical contact with these men as he had in chapter 5 of Luke where he had put his hand out and he had touched the man saying, uh, be cleansed. Jesus instead responds to the request for mercy by telling them to go and show themselves to the priest. Now, this says a couple of interesting things to us. It reminds us that Jesus is not some rogue rebel who is casting shade on the process of worship that had been described to the Jews in Leviticus and in the Old Testament Torah. God uh, sent his son Jesus and Jesus worshiped in the mode of the laws of Moses. He came and fulfilled those laws. And these men, still being under the law, were given clear instruction by Jesus to go back and do what the law had told them to do. To go and see a priest and be cleared to worship again. But tell me, what is weird about the request that Jesus gives? Can anybody see it? They weren't cleansed yet. Jesus doesn't come and touch them and heal them and then send them off and say, okay, now go follow the rules. Go talk to a priest and get cleansed and enjoy this newfound health. He simply says, do what a healed man would do in your situation. He tells them to go and they must go on faith. We read in this text that these men went forward to find priests even before they saw that they were healed. There is a measure of faith, or at the very least, hope in their actions. It would have been embarrassing, wouldn't it, to say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to go. And then to walk all the way to Jerusalem or, or, a, or a, a, a synagogue nearby where a priest might be teaching and say, here I am, I'm, I'm clean, right? Give me the thumbs up if they still had sores upon their bodies, if their bones were still twisted, if they were still afflicted by this dangerous disease. They were walking forward in faith. There will likely be a time in your life, believer, when God's word directs you to move forward before you have seen the realization of his promise in your life. Even though you have not yet seen how things will eventually turn out, even though you have not yet seen all the evidence that your human mind thinks it needs to believe, God will say, move, child, and you will have to walk forward. You will be called to forgive someone who has repented to you 
even though you have not yet had enough time to see whether they are truly repentant or not. You remember the first four verses of chapter 17 where we were taught that there is no way for us to eradicate all sin from God's gathering of people, that the church will have sin in it. But then he went on to teach us how we are to, in humility, confront that sin and then have a willing heart, a willing heart to forgive those who repent, even if they repent as many as seven times in a day and then offend us again and then repent and then offend us again and repent that we should be willing to forgive. And it is tough to walk forward on faith and to give someone a forgiveness that maybe in our hearts we don't think they deserve. And yet, the Word is telling us that if they show a repentance, if they say they repent, even before you feel that they have won your trust back, you are to forgive. Now, that doesn't mean you fully trust that individual with no boundaries, but it means you are to give them forgiveness and let them back into fellowship with you. So that's something you might have to do in accordance to Scripture that is going to have to be a faith obedience, not a sight obedience. You are told by God's word to value treasure in heaven more than you value treasure on earth. So things that have eternal significance, things that in so many ways today are not tangible or physical or material, need to matter more to you than the dollar bills you can pick up and fold and put in your pocket. They need to matter more to you than the resources that you can buy insurance for here on earth. That's going to require you to walk in faith. Can you trust God enough to not be like the rest of the world that puts so much emphasis and time and thought in the material things that will, by their own very nature, fail you? Can you walk by faith and not by sight? The scripture is going to tell you, friends, to share the gospel with the people around you who don't know yet know Christ. Also to those who do know Christ, because we all need the gospel, right? But you're going to be called to go to those who might even be abrasive to your faith, those who have no interest in what you do on your Sundays, those who don't care about a God who may or may not have instruction for them. You are called to go to them and to, however possible, share the love of Christ with that individual. Point them to the truth that He has preserved to us in His Word. And you might do that and see no fruit from it whatsoever. You might continue to testify to the amazing impact that Christ has had in your life. And others might say, well, that's good for you, but I don't need any of that. You might hear those kinds of responses again and again and again. And still yet you are called to walk forward in faith before you even see the fruit of your faithfulness. So are we ready for that, church? That is a challenge that we must embrace as God's people. To be disciples, we must ready ourselves to walk by that faith and not insist on the, on the sight. God orders us to trust our faith more than we can even trust our eyes. And so though all ten are apparently willing to obey Him, and they listen to this command, and they depart from Him to go see a priest, and though all ten are subsequently healed so far as we can see here in Scripture, we are, we are able to see that only one, realizing that he had been cleansed, had the presence of mind to turn around, even before he had seen that priest, and to go back to the source of his newfound health and well-being. Luke 17, verses 15 through 16, And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice glorified God. 
and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. He fell at the feet of his Savior and expressed worshipful gratitude to him. His posture tells us as much. When one came to another's feet, that was an expression of subservience. That was one putting themselves physically in a posture of being beneath the other person, acknowledging their authority, acknowledging that they had a position, a station above their own. The fact that he was humble enough to do that showed the condition of his heart. He recognized his subordination to to Jesus, and he was happy to do so. The gift of healing, of being set free from their leprosy, was enough to change the lives of these ten men. But the temporary blessing was not the greatest gift that was given to them that day. The one who returned to Jesus realized that at the end of his leprosy, that was only part of the life change that this man had brought He was experiencing something even greater that day. Upon realizing the leprosy was gone, questions must have flooded this man's mind. I mean, think about the process of of leaving Jesus still with your leprosy. Some maybe with with much effort, you know. It it often made it very difficult to walk and to get around when you had leprosy in your limbs and your legs. So as they hobbled away and wondered, what is going to come of this? How is Jesus intending to use this? Am I going to be just an illustration? Am I, am I going to be truly healed? Why did he not put his hands on me and, and show me love? But then to go a little ways and then look down and realize that the, the burdens that you had been bearing maybe for years were suddenly not there. For someone who couldn't feel, can you imagine what it was like to just suddenly have sensation again? You take a couple steps and you realize, my feet are getting sore. I'm cold. I haven't felt this for so long. And to realize that the power of Christ was overcoming that which was broken in you. Can you imagine what it must have felt like? What kind of a man is this? Who is this rabbi who can with a word change what all my striving and grieving could not change? He has done something in me. He has done what no other man could do. He has healed me. And there is only one place that this kind of power could come from. And that one of the nine realized that this must be the work of God through Jesus Christ. His reaction goes beyond gratitude. I hope you see this. His reaction goes beyond gratitude. The man had come into contact with a supernatural power. And he understands that it can only be of God. And so he returns, not just to offer thanks, not just to say, I'm so happy that you made me better. I appreciate it so greatly. If there's anything I could do to repay you, I'd be happy to help. No, but to offer worship. He came to acknowledge the work of God in his life through Christ and to encounter more of this man, Jesus, who was clearly being used of God. The text slips one more small detail into the picture, which brings with it much meaning. The one man who returned was a Samaritan. Now that detail did not have to be important. We've already read in Luke how Jesus had healed not just the Jewish people, but he had also healed Greeks. He had helped Gentiles. A centurion was healed. He had shown compassion to others who were not necessarily of the race of the Jews. So we already know that his mercy can work beyond the boundaries of ethnicity. But the fact that 
should stand out to us is that the one of the nine who reacted appropriately, who reacted authentically in love, was the one you would at least expect to do so. The one who came from a culture that was not glorifying God according to his commands. We learned earlier that Jesus and his disciples were on a road in between Samaria and Galilee. Samaria is home to the Samaritans. Samaria was located in the northern kingdom of Israel, and it was in 722 B.C. that the Assyrian army came and conquered Samaria, which was the de facto capital of the northern kingdom. Uh, Many generations before, after the rule of King Solomon, there was great division, and the 12 tribes of Israel separated. The two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, formed Judah, where Jerusalem remained, and the Tribes in the north formed Israel, and they had separate thrones from that point forward until 722 B.C., when after much disobedience to God, the Lord allowed uh, the the Hebrews in the north to be conquered. And as they were conquered, uh, these foreign people came and settled in the promised land that had been given to the Jews, and began to intermarry with the Jewish people, which was against the law of Moses. Moses had warned his people not to marry those who believed in foreign gods apart from Yahweh. And so these Samaritans formed a new ethnicity that was pseudo-Jewish, that was Jewish in many forms, in many of its styles, some of its practices of religion. And yet these Samaritans were considered sellouts to Yahweh. Because not only did they worship Yahweh in most situations, they were worshiping the foreign gods of the Assyrians in tandem. They were what we call syncretists. They joined the things that are holy to the things that are not holy. And because of that, the Jewish people despised them. This negative reputation meant that of all the people in the world who might get what God was saying, might understand it and follow it rightfully, no one would expect the Samaritans to do so. And so of all the men, it was shocking for them to see that the one who reacts the right way is not the one who was raised in an environment where they had every opportunity to hear and to know, but was one from the sinful race of the Samaritans. Where are the others? Those who were not foreigners, those who had the benefit of untainted Judaism taught to them as they grew up, those who had the right heritage and were corrected, connected to the correct route. <clears throat> Nevertheless, none of those nine men returned to give grace to Jesus Christ. The word that he uses to describe the Samaritan here in, uh, in the passage we just read, <clears throat> in the Greek is alegenes, which means foreigner, but it is a specific term. It is almost a derogatory term. Um, somebody who was foreign, but also looked down upon for their differentness. It only appears in Jewish and Kurdish literature. In 1871, archaeologist C. Claremont Guénaud discovered a stone in a dig around Jerusalem that had a complete warning written on it in Koine Greek. And this warning uh, is recorded again by the historian Josephus, who's a very, very important source of first century information about not only Judaism, but also the Christians who were growing in in size and impact during that time. The translation of this interesting message is this. No foreigner, and the word is allogenes, no foreigner is permitted inside the partition and wall around the temple. 
Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. It is believed that these stones with this inscription were, uh, were laid throughout the wall that separated the holy area of the temple from the courtyard where the Gentiles could go. And it represented this stark contrast between those who were truly chosen, the Jewish individuals, and those who were seen as not chosen, the Gentiles, who were not allowed to come near to the living God. The ones who ought to have recognized and praised the Lord for being the only one capable of washing them clean were the same ones who just got their blessing and then went about their business without letting it actually impact them in an eternally significant way. Though they were qualified to walk past these stones of warning and to go into the temple and to offer their thanksgiving to the Lord God, it is this Samaritan who would have been disallowed who comes back and gives grace and thanks to Jesus Christ and more than that, gives worship to Him. We're so grateful to remember that when Jesus gave His life on the cross, when his perfect humanity was sacrificed to pay the penalty of our imperfect humanity, that when that happened, Scripture records that the veil within the temple was torn in two. This man-made wall that represented a separation from the holy people, the Israelites, and the non-holy people, the Gentiles, was not even as significant as this veil that separated all the people from the holiest of holies that separated them from the presence of God, and yet through Christ, that veil is torn and destroyed. And so the Lord of hosts that we sang about earlier is a, host, a Lord of hosts that can be with us, that can be near to us now. And this one man of ten saw the value and the benefit of being near to Jesus as more important than just simply reinstating himself in the culture of his, of his, uh, of his worship. How might this scenario occur within us, believers, as we read about these things occurring and unfolding before our, our own eyes as we study? When our prayers to the Lord are answered by God, sadly, that often means that our praying stops. When our hearts are broken, when we are hurting, when we are sick, when we do not have what we think is enough, and we cry out to God, and we pray to Him, and we seek His face, when God answers and gives us the thing that we need, often that's when we stop approaching our God. That's often when we, we, we turn our focus back on living our lives and doing our own thing, and, and God then becomes relegated to the back burner of our focus and our attention. We turn and we walk away, at least until we need more help from our God, right? At least until we have something else that we can request from this powerful God. What do you think, friends, that this God is really most concerned with? Do you think God is more concerned with our happiness, with the level of comfort we experience in this life, or do you think He is more concerned with our closeness to Him? Do you think God is more concerned with making sure He topples down every little roadblock that you've got to step over to make your path straight and easy? Or do you think it's more important that you are walking hand in hand with Him no matter what the terrain looks like? God desires to be near to you. Is it more important that God make your life easy or that He draw you close? It is more important that you learn to abide 
in him, that you spend time with him, that you dwell with him, that you recognize that he alone is your provision and that apart from him, you are missing the entire purpose of your existence. If God is more concerned with being near to you than he is with giving you an easy life, then why would he bless you if your consistent response is to walk away from him after you bless if your consistent response is then to begin ignoring him as soon as you have your problems solved. He wants you. He wants to be close to you. It would be better for him to have you wounded than to heal you and see you walk away oblivious to him. Having taken the time to point out the difference in this one man's reaction, verse 19 says, and he said to him, arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And here we see the demonstration of principle that we learned just a couple of weeks ago when we studied through verses 5 through 10 of Luke 17. As Jesus showed us the true attitude of a servant-hearted person who simply trusts in his master in such a completely dependent way that it would lead to nothing less than obedient action. Remember, true faith is not just an intellectual belief that lives in the mind. It is a belief that is so real it cannot help but affect the action of the one who believes. And so this man's faith in Jesus Christ made him well. And it is obvious that there was some measure of faith in the other nine men as well because they obeyed even though they had not yet seen the, the effect of their belief. We see that clearly in verses 14 and 17 that all of them were made clean. All ten had the faith to believe that there was a power in Jesus that could undo the crippling effects of the leprosy that had afflicted their nervous systems. There was a God-given ability within Jesus that could relieve them of their suffering and straighten their twisted bones and bring life again to their nerve endings that hadn't felt sensation for years. They knew that Jesus had the power to remove the stigma of their sickness and restore them back to full fellowship. We have no record of what this healing led to in the other nine men. We don't know. We don't even know if they went on to see the priests. We would be spinning our wheels here today if we speculated and spent our time wondering about what they did. Jesus does not want us to focus on those nine. It is the reaction of this one, this foreigner, that has set the example for us in this story. This one man's faith is different in that it represents more than intellectual belief. It represents a faith so complete that it results in action, gratitude, worship, and adoration. Had this Samaritan traveled on to see a priest, the priest would have looked him over and found no sores. The priest would have looked him over and proclaimed him, well, you are qualified to go on with life now. But this man returned not just to a priest, but to the one great high priest of all priests. He presented himself humbly before that high priest, and Jesus has declared over the man, Go, your faith has made you well, but not just well, not just better, not just healthy, but whole. You are saved. This is the one in whom we put our trust, friends. Jesus Christ, our true healing is not in ourselves. Our true healing is with Him. And we will not experience the true joy of it unless we see that great blessing 
is not the removing of our discomfort, is not just the answer of our little day-to-day prayers that we hope God will give us what we want. It's not just the eradication of unhappiness, but rather in the fact that having our sin paid for by His death, by His burial, by His resurrection, that we return and can be near to Him. We can abide in Him. We can dwell with our God. So as we see the example of these ten and we realize that Jesus had come not just to restore some political Israel, not just to maintain the laws of Moses, but to come and fulfill them in his own life and then to give himself as a substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for all who would trust in him, that the blessing that we get that is greatest is not just relief from now and it is not just a heaven that is full with happiness. It is a nearness to the God of salvation himself. Let us return to his feet regularly and seek to be near to him, for in that is the great blessing of salvation. Would you all bow your heads with me as we close in prayer? God, thank you for hearing uh, our cries when we pray to you, Lord God. You are not a God who ignores your children. You are a God who gives very good gifts. Father, there is no earthly blessing that can hold a candle to the gift of our salvation, which first and foremost makes it possible for us to come near to you, to love you with a real relationship that is restored by the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, that was not possible apart from Christ. And there is no salvation in any other name because our sin disqualifies us from being near to a perfect and holy God. And so we're so very grateful today, Lord, that we can count ourselves as worthy to be near to you, not because of our actions or our good deeds or our religious observance, Lord, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so let us not just clap and rejoice and run about our lives thankful to be better than we were before, but God, let us return regularly to the source of our healing. Let us come before you willing to admit that we are just Samaritans who deserve nothing, but have because of your great mercy and love, receive so much more. We are your people because you have made us such. Thank you, Lord God, for all the grace that we can experience through your Son. And thank you that we can live according to that grace thanks to the words of Christ which are recorded for us here. We praise you, Lord God, and are so grateful to be yours. Help us to exalt you in all that we do. Help us to show you to this lost world. We thank you for all that you are in Jesus Christ. Amen.